going to read from Jeremiah chapter 1, which is the uh, next part of the Essential Word series. And the theme that was uh, given for uh, looking at this passage this morning was the question, Who me? So let's read Jeremiah chapter 1 and see where whoever thought up the title uh, got the idea from. It should become pretty obvious. It's on page 755 of the copies of the Bible that's in the pew. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth, in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, You have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north, I answered. The Lord said to me, From the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods and in worshipping what their hands have made. So get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you declares the Lord. So reads God's word. Who? Me? A remarkable thing happened in Ireland in this past week. On Wednesday, the Irish Taoiseach and the Kenny made a speech in the Doyle in response to the publication of the Cloyne Report. He addressed the failure of the Vatican to fully cooperate with the Irish state in investigations into child sexual abuse within the church. Indeed, 
The Taoiseach said that there was an attempt by the Holy See to frustrate an inquiry in a sovereign democratic republic as little as three years ago, not three decades ago. And in his speech, which has echoed around the world and left the Vatican somewhat reeling, he went on to say, The Cloyne Report excavates the dysfunction, disconnection, elitism, the narcissism that dominates the culture of the Vatican to this day. The rape and torture of children were downplayed or managed to uphold instead the primacy of the institution, its power, standing and reputation. I suspect that as a young Catholic growing up in Ireland, Enda Kenny would never have imagined that one day as Taoiseach of Ireland he would publicly castigate the church in which he was nurtured. Indeed, at one point in his speech he said, As a practicing Catholic, I don't say any of this easily. Growing up, many of us here learned we were part of a pilgrim church. Today that church needs to be a penitent church. A church truly and deeply penitent for the horrors it perpetrated, hid and denied. Across Ireland there has been huge support for the stand he has taken and his demand that the Vatican gives an account of itself to the Irish people. Having read and listened to the speech, it seems to me that his is an angry but considered response as the political leader of the Irish state. Religion and politics, as all of us in this island well know, is a volatile mix, and they prove to be uneasy bedfellows. While we continue to wrestle with deep-rooted political and religious sectarianism in the north, or Northern Ireland, just to make the point, the Republic wrestles with its previously taken-for-granted Catholic Irishness. The whole island appears to be a melting pot of confused and troubled religious and political identities and needs clear voices. This is nothing new or unique to 21st century Ireland. There were very different but equally troublesome challenges to be faced in Israel in the 7th century BC. As you may remember from some of the previous sermons in this series, particularly the one that our pastor David preached on Josiah, what under King David and Solomon had been a powerful and successful kingdom was now, when Jeremiah is written, a mere shadow of its former self. Rehoboam, the foolish son of Solomon, presided over the division of this great kingdom into two with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Eventually, Israel was overrun by the Assyrians, and the smaller Judah was left vulnerable to the power of Egypt to the south of it and the new emerging superpower of Babylon. And over the years since the division of the kingdom, Judah, with its capital in Jerusalem, had been poorly served by many of the kings who came to power. There were notable exceptions, like Hezekiah and Josiah. And yet even under these kings, politics and religion remained intertwined in an unhealthy and dishonest way. There were from time to time 
voices raised that spoke with clarity. They were the voices of men and women who were profoundly political, yes, and astute, but religiously faithful. They spoke with clarity and insight to local communities, to kings and queens, to the religious authorities. And their words changed things. Not by virtue of any military power at their command, or by virtue of financial muscle, or because they controlled significant sections of whatever passed for the news media in 7th century Israel and Judah. No, their words changed things because in reminding the nations of the terms of their covenant with God, they held up a mirror to their society and provided their people with choices. People could choose to acknowledge the truth of their analysis of the situation or they could choose to ignore it and face the inevitable consequences. They were the prophets of Israel. Good King Josiah came to the throne when he was eight years old. We don't know much about how his power was exercised while he was still very young, but it's reasonable to suppose that there were others behind the scenes who made the decisions and helped shape him to become the kind of king he ultimately became. Someone who was spiritually alert, with a sense of justice, and the importance of exercising power with godly discretion and wisdom. By the time he was 20, 12 years into his reign, the book of Second Chronicles tells us that under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles, the idols and the images. This was no mean task. Because under previous kings, Judah had become an almost entirely pagan nation. Jewish religious festivals and worship had been replaced by every conceivable form of pagan worship, even child sacrifice. So Josiah was taking on powerful vested religious and political interests within his country, not least the community of priests who under previous reigns had gained much by way of money, power and influence through the rise of paganism. And one year into this daring reform, a young man from a priestly village just northwest of Jerusalem felt the call of God to join the ranks of those troublesome prophets. Those who had been raised up to speak into the contemporary situation. His village was well known. And it had a special place in the social and religious life of the nation. Because from the days of Joshua, Anatoth had been established as a city of refuge. It was a place to which anyone who was guilty of manslaughter, but innocent of murder, could flee and be guaranteed sanctuary from an avenging family. So it was a significant place. And from the days of Joshua and the conquest of the land, it had been established as a community for priests, of priests, who would not only have officiated within the village of Anathoth, but being close to Jerusalem, would have served in the temple there as well. And the young man from this village, who was called by God to join the ranks of the prophets, was Jeremiah. He was the son of a priest almost certainly 
destined to follow his father into the priesthood and live a life of security, significant influence, and comfortable wealth. Almost certainly, he was expected to be suspicious of people like Josiah with his religious reformation and certainly expected to have nothing to do with these prophetic doomsayers, these religious upstarts who claimed to speak for God to the people, which was properly the reserve of the priesthood. Little wonder then that as he senses this call of God, he is somewhat hesitant. Ah, sovereign Lord, he said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. Who? Me? You see, God's call on his life meant that he would have to go against everything expected of him by his family and his community. It's a call that will set him at odds with the wider community of priests and the religious hierarchy of the state. It's a call that he well knows, in the light of all that befell the prophets before him, could only lead to trouble and rejection. It's a call to speak up for God in a godless society. Indeed, when the word of the Lord comes to him, he is told in verse 18, I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you. There's going to be trouble. He's going to need rescued, declares the Lord. So what can we take from this account of Jeremiah's call in Jeremiah chapter 1? I'm sure there are many things. There's a couple of things I'd like to say. First of all, a kind of negative thing. I'd like to deal with some of the confusion that sometimes exists in people's minds about knowing God's will and God's call. There's a dangerous temptation to read Jeremiah chapter 1 and other stories like the calling of Moses or Saul of Tarsus as the basis on which we expect that, like them, we too, all of us, should have the same kind of certainty about what we are called to do and our role in life. Sometimes, out of fear or genuine desire to do what's right, Christians can agonize over knowing God's will. Agonize to the point of being paralyzed. It's not helpful. And it's never good practice to take a historical incident from the Bible and make it into a theological rule for everybody. Now, it's not wrong, obviously, to pray and ask what God would have you do, but be sure of this. If God has a specific task for you to do, the text implies you'll know about it. Just like Moses. Just like Jeremiah. Just like Saul of Tarsus. God doesn't play hide and seek with these things. The biggest challenge you might face is the willingness to do what God wants you to do. It won't be trying to work out what it is. And if there's no Jeremiah experience in your life or no Moses experience of burning bushes or blinding lights like Saul of Tarsus, then you have to assume that God is quite content for you to make decisions about how you will use your gifts and abilities in the world of work, the church, or whatever. And in that case, your main prayer should be for wisdom and discernment to make good decisions. 
So if you're concerned about knowing God's will for your life, God's will for your life, but don't seem to be getting any clear answers, then make sure you're praying the right prayer. We're not all Jeremiah's. We're not all like Moses, and we won't all have blinding lights like Saul of Tarsus. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is that there's something in this passage which is a beautifully simple way of thinking about what is being called or what being called to follow Jesus implies. There are two words or two terms that are used here in this passage um, when Jeremiah senses God's calling him to become a prophet. Um, One is consecrated, or in the NIV translated, set apart. I set you apart, I consecrated you. And verse 5, and the other one is, I appointed you. Consecrated and appointed. When something or someone is consecrated, they're set apart as holy for God. Some religious traditions consecrate buildings. The idea is it marks them as given to God's use. Consecration has this idea of marked as given to God, or as the NIV translates it here, set apart, set apart to God and for God. When we speak of someone appointed, we think of them being equipped and given to a particular task. So Jeremiah is appointed to the role of prophet to the nations. Those of you who are into orienteering, which I'm not, will be well used to looking for fixed points as you navigate from the start to the finish. Indeed, before the introduction of satellite navigation, the stars served as fixed points by which sailors could navigate the seas. And when you're looking for directions of how to get somewhere, you're hoping that people will give you some fixed points by which you will know where you're going. Jeremiah has two fixed points to help him navigate his way through life and a pretty tough life it's going to be. One is that he is consecrated, set apart for God's service, and the other is that he is appointed as a prophet to the nations. And if you take time to read the whole of the book, you'll see just how he uses these fixed points. The knowledge that he is consecrated, set apart for God, and that God had called him to this particular task. How he uses these fixed points to steer his way through many different challenges and difficult circumstances. When he's threatened by the leaders of his own priestly home village, as he is in chapter 11. When he's overwhelmed by depression, as he is in chapter 20. When he's been hunted by the forces of the state, as he is several times throughout this book. When what he says is derided and disregarded, and when he's thrown down a well and left to die. These fixed points of reference, that he was set apart for God and appointed to a task, enable him to work his way through these many varied and difficult situations with integrity and perseverance. Jeremiah always knows who he answers to and basically what he's supposed to do. I think this is a very helpful way for us to think about our lives as Christians. Every Christian has at least two fixed points of reference, consecrated and appointed, just like Jeremiah. Belonging to God and called to follow Jesus. Those are our fixed points. When Peter addresses those he's writing to in his letter, he makes this clear. When he says that we are sanctified, which is the same idea as consecrated, for obedience to Jesus Christ. 
Two fixed points. Sanctified, made holy, set apart to God and for God for obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what we're appointed to. It's pretty straightforward. But these fixed points can help us navigate our way through the challenges and the opportunities of life. Every Christian should know that we answer to God and we're supposed to follow Jesus. Those are the fixed points. And knowing this is actually more important than knowing a whole lorry load of doctrine. Knowing that I belong to God, that I answer to God and have the privilege of knowing him as a fatherly carer and knowing that my primary calling is to follow Jesus provides me with fixed points of reference which help me navigate through times of uncertainty, times of difficulty, times of plenty, times of want, through relationships, through decisions, through facing options. Not everything is going to be obvious in life. Every answer to every challenge will not be immediately obvious, but we do have fixed points to help us navigate through the periods of decision-making and uncertainty. I belong to God who has first call on me, to whom I shall answer, and of whose kindness I can be certain. And I'm called to follow Jesus, so I'm called to seek to mirror his disposition, his faithfulness, his pattern. Those are my fixed points. And the last thing I'd want to say as I think about this passage and and this call is the significance of being a witness. The nature of Jeremiah's task is simply to speak God's message. Verses 9 and 10 make that clear. The Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. He's not called to raise an army. Or sufficient finance for a major religious campaign. He's not called to enter the king's court as an advisor or politician. He's simply called to use words. To proclaim. To speak. Sometimes he'll do that verbally, in person, like I'm doing right now. Sometimes he'll do it through the written word and the help of a friend called Barak. But words will be his trade. Now, if you were to think that a rather weak kind of calling, a rather pathetic response to the religious and civil forces that control society, you would be wrong. Words matter. What is spoken makes a difference. For most of the last century, and all of this one, many philosophers have become fascinated with language and how language and how words work. There are lots of theories about how words and language works. One of them is called a thing, a thing called speech act theory. It's really quite a simple idea. The point is that words don't just refer to things. You know, it's not just book and wood and table. Words can cause things to happen, like commands, stop, or go. Words can sometimes create things, like the whispered. I love you. Could be the beginning of a whole new direction for two lives. Sometimes words and language destroy. Hurtful things, untruthful things, manipulative language can destroy relationships. Sometimes words can change circumstances. What is said, whether it's spoken or written, 
can change things or at the very least make things happen. And Jeremiah is told that what he says on God's behalf will change things. It will bring things into effect. That's why it talks about the prophet being set over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. His role is not to foretell the future, but to bring the future into the present. And Peter's instruction to the early Christians is that they should, as he says in 1 Peter 3, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but to do it with gentleness and respect. And he says this to people who are living in very difficult circumstances. Treated with suspicion by their society, sometimes rejected by their families, and economically disadvantaged in many ways. And when Jeremiah spoke about God's covenant with his people, whether he was providing encouragement or warning of judgment, some light was brought into the darkness of Judah's life. Some way of seeing was given to those who could not see because of the paganism. Some doors of possibility were opened that seemed firmly shut. And the same is true when you and I speak about the faithfulness of God and the grace of Jesus Christ outside of these walls. Enda Kenny has no direct influence or power over the Vatican. But it is clear that his words have changed something within the Irish state and between the Irish state and the Catholic Church in Ireland. He has not just made a statement about how law will operate, that the laws of the church will be subject to the laws of the state. He has further shifted the way people think about the church and the state and that relationship wherever that will lead. Jeremiah, consecrated and appointed as he was, navigated his way through the minefields of religion and politics in ancient Judah, bearing faithful witness to God's covenant relationship with his people. And what he said made a difference and brought the rule of God to bear on the life of the people. We are called, as Christians, using the fixed points of our belonging to God and our obedience to Jesus Christ to bear faithful witness to God's grace and love made known in Jesus. What we say will make a difference in the lives of others as we share the good news of the kingdom of God. Because words can change things. But perhaps some of you are saying, Who? Me? The things that I could say? Yes. You.